Go within to find the answers you seek. About Hugh, a memoir in living color, written and narrated by Elaine Marie Sharp. Episode 1 Chasing Rainbows. Hugh, am I? I have always been mad about Hugh, and I blame crayons. I received my first box of these waxy creations when I was about three years old, leading to years of self-imposed coloring therapy. Whenever I felt inspired or just wanted to block out my noisy family, I'd empty the yellow box onto the floor and let the crayons roll, until I caught them and laid them out in front of me like an elaborate fan. For hours, I would lie on my stomach with my feet pointing skyward, immersed in my own little coloring world of castles and horses and and everything girly. As a child, my favorite colors were pink, red, magenta, midnight blue, and thistle. But there were some crayons I didn't like at all, mainly flesh and burnt umber, which I thought were just plain gross. Like many people, I began my appreciation of color through nature. In school, I was that kid who chastised others for not coloring the world correctly. No, pumpkins are not blue, and no, the sun is not green, I'd insist. You're not doing it right. I probably sounded a lot like Hermione from Harry Potter. You know, it's Leviosa, not Leviosa. I grew up in a military family. We moved every few years to such diverse locales as Texas, Germany, Mississippi, Italy, and Alaska. Now, Alaska was quite colorful. If you've never visited our 49th state, you might think it was one glittery white snowball. I lived there when I was six years old, and I remember the green trees, the blue icebergs, and the beautiful rainbow display of northern lights but I also remember a lot of yellow. There was a neighbor lady who asked me to pick the yellowest dandelions from our front yard and bring them to her. She said she made butter from the dandelions and would invite me over for some nice homemade bread and butter. Well, I was a gullible kid back then, and I suppose she was pulling my leg because I have never, ever heard of dandelion butter since but I do remember how good that melted butter tasted on my bread and how very bright and yellow it was, just like the Alaskan sun. Color-wise, Italy was quite different. We lived close to Brindisi in the tiny town of Ladiano. Our house was called the Blue Villa, a powdery blue mini-mansion surrounded by acres of vineyards. The southern Italian land wasn't spectacular, mostly a dry-looking brown with specks of olive green, but when the persimmon trees were full, there was a fragrant symphony of orange. 
No matter how often we moved, I could always find some color to play with. In junior high, I abandoned my crayons and tuned my color radar to my teeny bopper wardrobe. In home ec, I made this awful, and I mean awful, geometric orange and hot pink mini dress, not unlike something Marsha Marsha or one of the other Brady Bunch girls might wear. I was a poor seamstress, and its shelf life was extremely short since I couldn't actually wear the thing. I think it was donated to Salvation Army or thrown out with the garbage. When mothers get a hold of things, they just disappear, don't they? I caught the disco fever in the late 70s, the era of shiny, multicolored mini dresses and platform shoes, and was my closet full of them. I was particularly fond of wearing the silvers and coppers and golds, and when I was on the dance floor, the light from the revolving disco ball would cover me in rainbows. It was magical, and I loved it. Collecting miniatures and building room boxes and dollhouses was my new passion in the 80s, inspiring me to be both colorful and creative. One of my favorite creations is the Caribbean Gift Shop. It's the largest room box I own, featuring an exotic island panorama and vibrant paintings on the walls. It reminds me of a shop Nick and I visited in St. Lucia, where all the colors of the earth, sea, and sky were more intense than anywhere else I have traveled, like stepping inside a spectacular painting. Eventually, I became a real mini-maniac and built an Irish pub, a baseball diamond with bleachers, a riding stables, a doll shop, a zoo with a train, a seaside cottage, a Christmas shop, and a haunted house. But as much as I enjoyed creating Miniature making is an expensive little hobby, so I rarely do it anymore. Who knows? Maybe I'll go back to it when I'm an old lady and wearing purple. When I was a professional writer in my 30s and was suffering from an unusual case of writer's block, I discovered Arasoma, the holistic color system developed by Vicki Wall, a surgical chiropodist before she lost her eyesight. That's when color became my muse. So here I am today, enjoying my sensational 60s, and guess what? I'm back to coloring with crayons. Holy rainbow, Batman! Color television was made for Saturday morning cartoons, or was it the other way around? Around 7 a.m. during the mid-60s, I would begin throwing blankets over the chairs in our living room. It was the kids-only tent where my siblings and I would sit in our pajamas eating our magically delicious colored marshmallow cereal, watching a chromatic cartoon marathon of Johnny Quest, the Flintstones, the Jetsons, Bugs Bunny, Tweety and Sylvester, Yogi Bear, Huckleberry Hound, and Quick Draw McGraw. If I had to guess, I'd say I've spent more than half my childhood in front of the television set. Much of it was mindless entertainment, although Mom did manage to get us to watch some educational programming. For me, it was frequently the color of the actors' costumes or movie sets that kept my interest 
more than the storyline. This was especially true about Batman. With every pow, bam, and splat fighting sequence, along with Bruce Wayne's countless old chum references, Batman had to be the hokiest, cheesiest show on the planet in the 60s. I'd also give it a big thumbs up for most colorful. Every time the red bat phone and millionaire Bruce Wayne's study hummed, we knew another crime had been committed in Gotham City, and Commissioner Gordon was relying on Batman and Robin to capture the culprit, despite the fact they had no superpowers, just gadgets. The most notorious of Gotham City criminals were Catwoman, the Riddler, Penguin, and the Joker. Catwoman wore all black, the Riddler was slime green, and the Penguin sported a neon purple top hat and bow tie. But my favorite villain of many colors was the Joker, portrayed on television by Cesar Romero. With this character, the normally suave actor's face and trademark mustache were painted white. His hair was green, and his exaggerated mouth was red. I particularly enjoyed his purple suit with the matching gloves, green shirt, and black tie. Although minor villains King Tut, Louis the Lilac, and Zelda the Great were pretty colorful too. King Tut was flamboyantly decked out in gold jewelry and flashy red, orange, blue, and purple shades. To no great surprise, Louis the Lilac wore violet suits. And in episodes 9 through 10 of the first season, special guest villainous Zelda the Great flaunted a multicolored costume, prompting an excited Robin to exclaim, Holy Rainbow, Batman! Until recently, I had thought Robin's costume was designed to reflect an actual Robin, the bird. I was wrong. His red, green, and yellow costume paid homage not only to Dick Grayson's circus past, but to Robin Hood, that medieval repscallion who robbed from the rich to give to the poor. Like most kids I knew, I read a lot of comic books, which was another color paradise. In the comics, Batman wore a black bat suit, illustrating his deep connection with the bat and dedication to nighttime vigilante activities. The black color was meant as a warning to criminals as well as an effective way to hide his identity. But on the television series starring Adam West, Batman was donned in shades of blue and gray, complemented by a yellow bat insignia and utility belt. Way before my time, Batman became the Rainbow Batman in a Detective Comics book in 1953. In this issue, Dick Grayson had injured his arm while rescuing a young girl. To confuse Gotham City's crooks and protect Robin's identity, the caped crusader wore a different colored costume each day, hoping to draw attention from the boy wonder's wounded arm. Funny, but I don't know why the Rainbow Batman story makes me think of Day of the Week underwear. Do they still make those? They were colorful, too. Black Lights and Jesus As I look back on my life, I see a long trail of anger, tears, and doubt. 
I spent many years questioning my Catholicism and wondering why I never felt peace and joy whenever I came out of Mass. My Southern Baptist friends were always joyful. Why couldn't my church be like theirs? There had to be something more. When I was a teenager in the early 70s, musicals like Godspell and Jesus Christ Superstar were popular and they stirred something deep within me. At the time, my family life was difficult and so I fled to a coffee house for teenagers called The Back Door, which was basically a large room connected to our Catholic Church. This is where I talked about Jesus, played my 12-string Framus guitar, and sang, Pass It On, Day by Day, and I Don't Know How to Love Him. Glowing in the dark amongst black lights and psychedelic posters, I felt safe there, like I was inside a magical cave or immaculate womb. This was also the time I began reading the Seth books and The Magic of Believing by Claude Bristol. That book made a great impact on me and was my introduction to creative visualization, although I now realize I had practiced it all my life. Some family members teased me about spending so much time at the back door, saying I was not really a Jesus lover and only pretending to be pious. And so my faith was tested and I failed miserably. I spent the rest of my teens being angry at God angry at my family, and that anger lasted throughout my 20s. Occasionally, there would be a friend who would try to get me involved in a Bible study group or even try to convert me to become a Mormon or Hare Krishna, but I didn't want any part of it. I felt God had abandoned me, if he even existed at all, and I was so angry that I refused to listen to religious Christmas carols during the holidays nor allow a nativity scene or an angel ornament on my Christmas tree. Well, I would love to proclaim that a beautiful angel appeared to me and said I was loved and had to change my evil ways, and that's when I began my great spiritual journey. (laughs) But my awakening was nothing that dramatic, although I do work with angels now. Actually, the most significant thing I can remember is the day I purchased You Can Heal Your Life by Louise Hay. I was about 30 then. Louise talked about self-love and forgiveness, two things I desperately wanted but had absolutely no idea how to achieve. Her best-selling book represented another turning point in my life, as did other Hay House books. They helped me improve my self-esteem and accept my healing and intuitive abilities. I call them my books of illumination. So for the past 25 years, I have been working on self-love and forgiveness and opening my heart chakra. I've read a lot, listened a lot, and now I'm almost 56 and I feel happy because I know I am clearly on the right path. It's not the same path as others, but it's the right path for me. It feels true and I know that I am forgiven and very loved. I no longer require a dark purple glowing room to feel safe.
spearmint leaves and orange slices. And with two bases loaded, here's the pitch. Ah, Summer, I close my eyes and I can hear Harry Carey's relaxed voice on a hot August day in St. Louis. I am sitting on the carpet in my grandparents' living room, watching the St. Louis Cardinals baseball game on television. There's a noisy fan spinning hot air on my face, and I am clutching an ice-cold green bottle of 7-Up. It's a fun soda. I like its clean, lemon-lime flavor and how the bubbles go up my nose whenever I take a swig. Grandpa sits in his chair, chewing tobacco like an absent-minded cow, then spitting it out in his spittoon. When I was much younger, he had broken off a piece and offered it to me as chocolate. Not one to ever pass up a sweet, I tried it, and it was disgusting. Grandpa could be such a prankster. The living room has various mutations of brown, green, and orange, but the sugared spearmint leaves and orange slices are the most colorful things in the room to me. They have a special place in a candy jar on the coffee table. I must have superpowers because I can smell their sweetness through the glass. One ball, two strikes, two outs. I don't know if it's true or not, but there's a family story that Grandpa had tried out as a pitcher for the St. Louis Browns. He must have felt he did well because he went into the locker room afterwards and initiated a crap game. Sadly, he never became a professional baseball player. It would have been nice to have season tickets. Whether playing outfield or sitting in the bleachers as a spectator, I've spent a lot of time at ballparks. I love the smell of the freshly mowed green grass and the dusty red earth in between the baselines. I've seen a lot of different color combinations take the field. Blue and white, navy and gray, red and white, green and yellow, black and orange. We were living in Darmstadt, Germany when I was crowned Little League Baseball Queen. I don't recall the specifics, but I know I had earned my regal title by selling the most Christmas cards or seeds or some other merchandise. Poison Beauty had nothing to do with it. Prior to the Little League game, several ballplayers carried me on my bouncing throne around the bases as I waved to my adoring public in the stands. The crowd clapped unenthusiastically, and I couldn't help noticing some spectators wore white t-shirts stained with bright yellow and red condiments. After that, it was play ball, and the players assumed the field. I paid for a grayish hot dog with mustard and relish and watched the game from the bleachers, just like a commoner. It was probably the shortest coronation of any queen on record. Blood Red The night I was stabbed, I was wearing a pink sweater, faded blue jeans, and a long navy maxi coat. I stood alone at the bus stop across from the university, 
clutching my purse and books, watching for the bus that would eventually take me to my grandmother's. It was very cold. Occasionally, I would see people exiting the pizza joint behind me. Each time the door opened, there would be a wave of bright lights and noisy conversation, and then the door would close, and my attention would return to the darkness, the wind, and the traffic. I was alone, but I wasn't afraid. At least, not at that moment. Buses came and went on the busy St. Louis Road, but not my bus, and it was getting colder, windier. From the corner of my eye, I noticed a dark man approaching on the sidewalk. He was wearing a wool hat. I don't remember the color, but I remember the acorn shape of that hat. Normally, I would have been more cautious at night. Normally, I would have watched this man until he had passed me and was out of my view. But I was momentarily distracted because I thought I saw my bus arriving. The bus passed without stopping. And it was that one moment of not concentrating on my surroundings that proved my undoing. Before I knew it, I was grabbed from behind, a hard knife pressed against my neck. I had to think fast. I don't have any money, I stammered. I wanted to kick and gouge out the man's eyes, but his knife was digging into my flesh. I don't care about your damn money, bitch. He pulled me backwards, away from the street lamp. I could feel his hot breath against my neck as I struggled to hold onto my books and purse. A car paused at the bus stop and a passenger peered through the window. Oh God, do you see me? Please see me but any chance of a rescue seemed fruitless. The car was too far away. I couldn't scream. I couldn't run. I was a frozen shadow. When the car drove off, my assailant continued to pull me through the darkness until we were in the alley between the pizza place and an apartment building. Except for my beating heart and the man's heavy panting, it was very quiet. The bus stop and streetlights were a watery blur as I stood in the darkness, crying and worrying about my fate. I don't know how long that knife was digging into my skin. When the man suddenly released it, I stole a glance behind me. My assailant's head was down, and I detected a glint of his silver pants zipper. His gloved hand was tugging at it. Oh God, I'm going to be raped. Oh, God. I screamed as loud as I could. Scream again, bitch, he hissed, and I'll kill you. He must have been fiddling with his zipper again because he let go of me for a moment. I screamed again. Hey, what the hell's going on out there? It was some disembodied voice from an apartment dweller. That's when my attacker plunged the knife and snarled. Die, bitch! He ran from the alley, and I collapsed to the ground. I never saw his eyes, not once, just that damn hat and that damn zipper. I don't recall how long I lay there on that cold ground amongst the dirty cigarette butts and 
empty beer cans, but eventually I stood up, stumbled out of the alley, and found my way to the front door of the restaurant. Walking inside was surreal. The place was dizzy with color as pizzas were thrown onto platters, delivered to tables and consumed by rowdy customers who cheered and jeered at the waitresses. And nobody sees me. In the ladies' room, I stood in front of the mirror, holding on to the counter, shaking, not recognizing my own reflection. I was very pale. When I opened my coat, I found blood soaking through the top of my pink sweater. My red blood. Like a zombie, my movements were strange and slow. I was still wiping away the flowing blood with a stack of brown paper towels when a woman entered the bathroom. Looking at herself and nothing else, she brushed her hair, freshened her lipstick, and was gone. She never even looked at me. I realized I needed help, but apparently I was invisible. As if in a dream, I walked through the crowded restaurant, out into the night, and back to campus, where I found my English professor still reviewing essays in her classroom. She called the campus police, and I waited for them to take me to the hospital. While I was being treated in the sterile, white emergency room, the police officers told me they suspected I had been attacked by the same man who had raped a young woman earlier that evening. So you were lucky, they said. Lucky? On my neck are two scars a pair of pinkish, beigeish souvenirs from a cold and bloody red night I wish had never happened. But whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? Listening to Mad About Hugh, a bi weekly summer podcast series written and narrated by color therapist Elaine Marie Sharp. Today's excerpts are from the book Mad About Hugh, a memoir in living color, available at AuraHouse.com. Please join me again for episode number two as the colors turn. Until then, don't forget to stop and enjoy the pretty colors. <laughs>